Welcome to Jaipur Bites. I'm your host, Lakshtata. This episode is the edited version of a live session from the Jaipur Literature Festival 2021. Girl in White Cotton, the story of burnt sugar. Avni Doshi in conversation with Janice Parriott. Hi everyone, good afternoon. It's a rather lovely spring day here in Delhi and welcome to everyone who's joining us. And honestly, I am so, so thrilled um, to be here with Avni. Um, Avni and I have known each other for so long, virtually, and we haven't had the pleasure of meeting face to face. Um, but I hope, Agni, that this little session signals good things to come, that this is paving the way um, for us to share a glass of wine at some point this year, if not sooner. Yeah? How are yeah. you doing? I'm good. I was actually just thinking that um, even though we haven't met in person, I feel like we have. So I'm always, you know, surprised then to think, oh God, actually we haven't met in person. I feel like we've interacted I know. Uh, so much of yeah. I know, like you were saying that our lives have been sort of so entwined and I, I actually feel that this is such a special point at which, at which to meet and have a little chat, a little conversation, because I've also sort of followed, you know, your writing, how it's been going for so long. Um, of course, from a distance, um, sadly, but honestly, just so thrilled that all of this um, success and all of this sort of wild, wild success has come your way because it's so well-deserved. Um, so sending you congratulations all the way from here, um, all the way um, to you, Avni. Yeah? Um, I think I'm, I just want to start with asking how you're doing, because I know last year was a bit of a crazy year for all of us. Um, I think I remember reading somewhere that, you know, you'd just uh, been shortlisted for the booker, you'd had a beautiful, happy, healthy baby girl, congratulations. Um, and you know, you were having a wonderful year and the world was falling apart. And how has it been after? Has, has it improved? Has that strange sort of juxtaposition of joy and terror sort of um, subsided a little bit? I think that, I guess, joy and terror are more closely linked than we normally assume. Um, I think that the last year brought that into close, uh, more like clearer relief for me to some degree. I I felt that they were kind of pushing up against each other yeah. um, in a way that was impossible to ignore. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've had a beautiful year in terms of my career and then it's also been, you know, difficult in other ways um, as it has been for everyone around the world. And I think that is a difficult thing to integrate. It's a tough thing to kind of really absorb 
and sit in for too long, um, it, it can make you a little bit uncomfortable. Yes. Um, it, it's led to a lot of conversations I've had with myself where, you know, I've almost questioned the good things because of all the bad things that have been happening around. Um, and then I've maybe questioned if I deserved the good things. So there have been those kind of strange internal private conversations that I've had. Yeah. Uh, but I guess that's part of the whole process of being yeah. alive today. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, this last year has felt like a very long, a very long and strange journey when it's just been a year. Um, but I do know that um, it's been a long and perhaps strange journey even for you as a writer with this book, right? Um, I read uh, Girl in White Cotton um, before it was even published. I had the absolute pleasure of receiving the uncorrected proofs um, in my hand. And I remember looking through uh, the manuscript and then calling Rahul and saying, what is this? What have you sent me? It's devastating. Why are you doing this to me, Rahul? <laughs> Um, and Avni, I reread the book, um, of course, for our little conversation today. And I have to say that I love it. I love it even more, if that's possible. I think it just held up new things as rereadings always do. Um, but you have said that when you started out, it was a lot like writing in the dark. Um, oh, my God, you had no clue what you were doing. Um, no idea about craft. And I, I love sort of this candid, sort of sharp honesty, by the way, of me. And it runs through your writing as well. Um, but I was wondering, how did you sort of write through that darkness? And how did you emerge, um, I can't re resist this, into some sort of light? Thank you. Um, first of all, thank you so much for being one of the first readers of the book, and, and you were, you actually were one of the first readers. Um, I think, I think sometimes uh, when you're inside the world of literature and inside the world of writing and publishing, it's hard to remember that everyone else, including often readers, are on the outside of it. Um, and that's where I was and I was completely on the outside. I only knew the books I loved, the ones that I loved to read. Um, some of them were part of this, you know, kind of uh, strict canon of um, white dead uh, writers. And some of them were, you know, maybe a little different than the normal thing you're given to read at school. But for the most part, my writing journey began as a reader. And um, I never took a creative writing class. I didn't know that creative writing was a thing you could study. Uh, I, I heard of it, but I didn't really understand what that meant. And I turned to art history. And it's funny because a lot of people say the same thing about art history. They're like, you can study art history. How bizarre. Um, but we both did and we loved it. <laughs> we both did. So I, I just loved, I loved that so much. Uh, but there was a kind of a distance where I felt like even though I was engaged in, I, I was so deeply 
engaged in all um, this creative work, I didn't feel like I was able to kind of explore my own creative urges. And that's really, that kind of void is the void I wrote into uh, to begin with. And it, it was dark, I guess, as voids are, you know, I didn't really know where to begin. I didn't know where to look for the light. I looked to books that I love to read, but I didn't have this um, varied diet of literature. Maybe I have a slightly more varied diet now. <laughs> Uh, so there was kind of like, I, I think I was malnourished, if you want to say, in certain areas. Um, and I, I thought I had to sound a particular way. I thought the book had to sound like a classic. I thought I had to sound like Henry James or even Marquez. I thought I had to sound, I, you know, I thought I had to write something that would be in conversation to, yeah. A kind of magic realism, what I understood as magic realism at that time, um, and now I know that that word in itself is kind of limited and problematic, but, uh, and it's strange because now I do feel in some ways I'm attempting to speak to Marquez in, diff in a different way, but I don't think it's necessarily um, in, in his language, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's funny the way these things happen. In a way, I guess it sort of comes full circle. Uh, I, I didn't, the darkness also, you know, included feelings that I never thought my work would see the light of day. I never thought anyone would read it. I thought it was just this private journey, something. I felt really self-indulgent, in fact, for a good part of of the process. I thought, what, I'm wasting this time. I could be doing something more productive. Um, and there was so much doubt, and I think that doubt can be a tricky thing. I think it's a constant dance, right? Because we write alone, I think even now to some degree, even though I have this, these wonderful editors who are just so brilliant and inspiring, and I have you know people who now want to see my work, I, it's a constant dance with self-doubt, I think, that, that writers experience. I'm sure you can speak to this much more eloquently than I can. Wait, I'm just listening to you and going, oh my God, that is so true. Oh my God, that is so true in my head, of course. Um, but absolutely, and I, I do think that self-doubt can be debilitating on one hand, of course, it can paralyze you, but it can also push you to write better, to be sharper, to be, to push yourself, to, I don't know, it's a strange thing, um, self-doubt, because you can give into it and be paralyzed, but you can work to try and move around it, over it in some way, and make yourself do, do better. But it is, like you said, very, very tricky. But Avni, out of all of this, you know, out of the shadows, out of sort of the murkiness emerges this incredible book, at the heart of which is this incredible um, character. Um, so like you, um, I started out writing with no idea that you could even do a creative writing course. And 
some things, as you said, come full circle. And I now find myself teaching a little creative writing course, um, which is hilarious. So I, I go into class saying, this is not going to make you a writer, number one. <laughs> but um, apart from that, what I do bring up in class is um, the importance of voice um, and how incredible sort of it can be for um, a writer to find that voice, to find a character's voice. And, and Girl in White Cotton is the book that I would bring up and say, read this, look at this, look at how she has masterfully crafted um, Antara's voice. Um, it is all voice for me. Well, the book is many things, but it is so much um, of voice. And I just want to know how, you know, how you found it? How did it come to you? Did it fall on your sort of page one day and it just rung true? Or was it a battle? Was it a, a struggle um, to, you know, to, to find Antara? I think it was a bit of a mix. I think I struggled to find a voice. You know, I, I don't have a very strong voice. Um, in, in my life that I think is a personal struggle of mine where I uh, have a complicated relationship with silence and remaining silent when maybe I should speak. And that's something I continue to negotiate um, privately. But, and I, I think to some degree that played a part in the difficulty for me with the earlier drafts of the novel and finding a way in with the voice. Um, but with this draft that you see before you that has been published now, it it just came. It just kind of came into my mind one day and it grew stronger and stronger and fuller and more insistent. And there were days when I felt I was a little bit being inhabited by this voice. Um, and after a while, she was sitting in the room with me really and i could you know kind of confront her as i was writing i could be in conversation with her yeah. um yeah you know jung i don't know if anybody is familiar with jung's work but he talks about this thing called active imagination and sometimes i fantasize that it was a kind of active imagination where i was in conversation with I don't know if it's a part of my own psyche or if it's some kind of separate, something separate that is kind of, that was coming through me in a way. Yeah. I don't know that those things are necessarily, um, you know, contrary to one another, but there was definitely a feeling that this voice was not mine. And for me, it became a really interesting discovery, you know, okay, this isn't me, who is this? And I think that was one of the beautiful things about writing it is it was so much, even though I had written so many drafts and there were bits of the story that would emerge. And, you know, in a way I felt I knew all these characters and their backstories because I had written all these other drafts. There was a sense of real curiosity and surprise as I was writing. And I think that curiosity is what helps the work feel alive while you're writing. Yeah. Um, the idea, there's something so, there's a pleasure, there's like a really deep pleasure, like an excitement in knowing that 
you can discover something. Um, and this is not to say that I'm against plotting and you know really thinking through the narrative before you begin writing. I'm not against it, but um, I think eventually when you sit down to write, there has to be a way in which you can put all of that aside and trust in the process and in the voice and maybe keep it a little open and see what comes through you and what what comes to you. Yeah. Um, again, these it's like, it's so strange to talk about it because it seems kind of really abstract and it almost seems a bit metaphysical, I think, in a way. Um, but but that is that is the process. It's such a strange, eerie, beautiful process to write. There's something that feels otherworldly at times. I don't know if you have that. Um, if you feel yeah, that, absolutely. There is a deep um, mystery, I think, mysteriousness to writing, um, and. And Virginia Woolf, I think, was, um, you know, very protective of it. She said, there are some things that we must not examine, that we must not look at. We need to gather it like a gift and put it away. Um, so I'm glad in some ways that you, that we, we, we fail to put into words how exactly it is done, because there are no words, perhaps, for how it, exactly it is done. Um, and that there is, you know, is the true sort of, um, is the is at the heart of it. I, I love I love the word mystery, and I wonder if um, what is a word for something that is so mysterious and unknowable, and yet at the same time quite mundane. Yeah. There's, there's something almost banal about it, right? Because it's something that writers engage in every day, perhaps. Um, so what is that? I don't know. What is that mystery that is so embedded in just that everyday part of existence? It could be as everyday as having your coffee in the morning, you know? So I, that in itself almost has like a tension for me. Yeah. Um, and again, to kind of integrate that tension is, yeah. is, is, is a fascinating part of the process as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And perhaps the mystery lies in the dailiness of it. Um, and they can't be separated, um, like you said. But look at us getting all philosophical first thing <laughs> this lovely afternoon. Um, I did, um, you know, I did wonder as well, as you were saying that, you know, you, you grew to know Antara so much better and she was almost sitting in the room with you um, by the end of it. Um, I was wondering, you know, I'm sure that, that in a way, getting to know Antara also clarified the other characters for you around her, right? That in a way, they became fuller and more um, clear to you, even though you'd done all of these drafts before. I just feel like she's, she's such a pivotal sort of um, point um, in the book that in some ways clarifying her clarifies everything, you know, around her. Um, I think Antara is, is such an incredibly difficult, prickly, frustrating even character. And of course, I know this is all um, deliberate, but I'm also really touched at some points by her vulnerability. Um, there's a moment in the book where her mother cannot recognize her, where 
Tara doesn't know who she is because she's in one of her sort of, you know, episodes. Um, and um, Antara says, um, if she, you know, if she doesn't know me, then I am no one. Um, and I thought that, you know, vulnerable sort of dependence on someone who has repeatedly abandoned her was just, uh, it was such a difficult thing to do. And you just, you know, you pulled it off with, with one line. Um, I know that, um, you know, at the heart of the book, of course, is, is this tricky, convoluted, complicated relationship between the mum and, um, and Antara. Um, and we'll get to that perhaps in just a little bit. But, you know, the other relationship that I'm also quite fascinated by and also really unable to pinpoint I can't figure it out and it really sort of, it sits in my head because I can't quite get my hands around, my head around it and my hands on it, um, is the relationship between her husband, Dilip, and, and, and Antara. And I just was wondering if you could flesh that out a little bit um, for us. I can never tell how Antara feels about him. And that's masterfully done. And I was wondering if that was deliberate on your part, how you saw that relationship playing a part in her life and in, in the book. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I, it was definitely deliberate. I was keen that all of Antara's relationships in fact be, exist in a kind of in-between space where it's, you know, it's unclear or it's, it actually isn't either a kind of good close relationship or a kind of bad negative relationship. I think there's this, for me, that felt the most true. I don't believe that we have relationships that are completely just not fraught with any um, complicated feelings. And, you know, we talk about motherhood as a theme in the novel. We talk about memory, but I think the real heart of the novel is this idea of ambivalence. Yeah. Um, and I realize ambivalence is at the heart of everything. I mean, even my writing process yeah. can be kind of summed up in this. We were just talking about this, this tension. And uh, I, think, I think ambivalence exists so deeply even in my writing process. So uh, for me, Anthura's relation, Anthura experiences deep ambivalence, I think even bordering sometimes on a kind of neurotic split between, you know, what she uh, wants of the world, yeah. what she wants to be in the world, how she wants to be perceived by everyone around her, including the reader. Uh, and yet, what about this trauma she carries and how that inevitably is kind of the film, uh, it's the, the, that, the kind of glass through which she views the world. So that was kind of the central tension. And I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why she does have deeply mixed and complicated feelings about her husband. You know, on one hand, he's saved her and he saves her again and again. And I think there's a kind of gratitude for that. Um, but at the same time, I think her, I think this question kind of 
floats through the novel that's not really asked directly, what if she didn't have to be saved? What would her life look like? And I think she might be also imagining somewhere in her life that there was this other path that she could have taken had she not been in various precarious situations throughout her life. Um, And I think that's what causes a lot of her pain and her anger. Um, She also, as a child, I think was in this dynamic of suppressing her aggression. And I think through her, in her marriage as well, she continues to kind of suppress this aggression. And as the novel goes on, you see this aggression begin to come to the surface. And um, it's, it's really powerful because in a way, I think that might be that shadow part of her voice. Mm-hmm. that is finally coming up for everyone to see. And I, I don't know if it's, sometimes I also wonder, is it that she does, does she love her husband? Does she not love her husband? Or is it that she's just presented a version of herself where no one really knows who she is? Um, because she's trying to fit into all these boxes. She's trying to please all these people. And, and it's hard to know someone like that. It's hard to really know a person like that. And I think that's also the consequence of this kind of trauma um, that you don't, you do, because your parents were never really able to mirror you because they were not strong enough to stand up to that kind of annihilation that a child requires and still emerge alive from that. She felt scared. She felt like who she was, there wasn't a container for it. And because there was no way to contain who she was, she transformed herself into something other than what she was. And I think that is something she continued, until the end of the novel, she is still negotiating that. And I don't think that is something, I I don't know if you can, I don't really believe you can think your way out of that Um, I don't believe therapy can get you out of that necessarily. That is a deep-rooted part of a personality. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's even a scene uh, sort of towards, you know, the end of the book where, you know, she does talk about a little session that she has with with the therapist and it just sort of washes off her she you know she she blocks it out um of course because the therapist is asking her lots of questions and this is precisely what she doesn't you know want to face but you're right we're left wondering whether even had she continued even had she you know gone for all of these sessions after would that really um really have have helped um would that have gotten her out of this um um, and 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 you're right. There are no answers. We don't know. And just as we don't know, even with with Dilip and and Antara. And I had a feeling you were going to say that, but I thought I'd try my luck anyway. <laughs> um, but let's get to the women in this novel. And I know again, there's been a lot of focus on. Dara and Antara, but I was fascinated by this web that you weave of women characters through the book. 
you know, because yes, of course, there's Tara and, you know, she is all that Antara believes she isn't. Um, but there is the grandmother, there's um, Kalima, there's also um, Antara's uh, dad's mother, who, you know, briefly sort of does play a part um, in their life um, at some point in the book. And then, of course, there's Dilip's mom as well. And I was just, you know, I was just wondering how um, you, you sort of brought these women together, how you saw them sort of fit into, um, of course, the story and the novel, but also the, 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 the frames within which you, you placed them. Um, you know, in, in, in the story, um, that of unwilling mothers or unknowing mothers, unknowing grandmothers, sometimes even of women, they all seemed to me a little lost, all of them. Um, and I was, you know, I was wondering if you could, if you could talk about all the women in your book. <laughs> um. Yeah, so I, I saw the women, for me, my understanding of women in a kind of loose family, as, as the one in the novel is, um, although it's not a particularly traditional family setup, it's, uh, I, I see the women as the ones who kind of control the kin relationships, in a sense. Um, so even though everything is kind of existing in this very patriarchal structure. I see the, the connections or the disconnects between the women as kind of, um, as the ones that actually produce the relationships, emotionally at least, yeah. and to some degree psychologically as well. Um, so I, again, I see this question of these mothers, these lost mothers, I, you know, it's interesting because um, I've had conversations with people where we discuss this word ambivalence. Yeah. And I've had conversations where people say, you know, this is a very modern thing, this maternal ambivalence. It's only because you're talking about it all the time and you're so aware of it and that's why you're thinking about it all the time. But I had a really interesting conversation with um, some friends of my husband. They actually, they live in Norway yeah. and they hunt. Yeah. So I was just asking them about that because hunting is kind of a very foreign thing to me. And they were explaining that they go into the mountains and they hunt the baby goats or the mother goats, and they know whether it's going to be a good hunting season based on the climate or the scarcity of food. What are the conditions um, in the previous year? Because the mother goat will decide based on what the conditions are, whether she is going to keep her baby, whether she is going to abort her fetus. And these are all decisions of motherhood. Yeah. So motherhood, in my opinion, so when we talk about these lost mothers, I think, I think we assume that being a mother means 
I want a child. And therefore, if you feel conflicted or ambivalent, you are a lost mother. But I would mm -hmm. like to maybe, maybe not completely rethink that, but just kind of add a different element to it where we can consider that perhaps being a mother is so deeply connected to ambivalence. And, and look, I mean, baby goats are ambivalent. Mother goats are ambivalent. Yeah. So this is something pre-language as well, that there's a kind of perhaps a biological component to this, right? Where, so I would argue that our grandmothers felt ambivalent, mm -hmm. that our mothers did, that even, even before that, you know, that there is a kind of ancestral uh, line for this sort of ambivalence and that it isn't about just having the language, that it is there is an instinctual element to this ambivalence as well. And so when we think about these lost mothers, I like to kind of consider also that, you know, the idea, maybe they're not lost. Maybe the, this act of questioning is also so such a deep part of uh, yeah. being a mother yeah. and that it's actually a necessary part of becoming a mother. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, thank you for that, Avni. That was fantastic. Um, and of course, um, within, um, you know, we've, we've sort of um, uh, touched on this a little bit, but, um, you know, this idea of um, trauma that is um, ancestral, that is passed down, that is generational, that in some ways is unacknowledged as well, because we have the means, the clinical means, for example, to detect, um, you know, diabetes and how that might be passed on to, uh, you know, future generations. Um, we have the clinical means to detect you know, physical um, sort of illnesses that might be passed on um, to your children and your children's children. But um, we don't quite talk about um, the way that trauma is passed on and handed down and, 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 and in some ways um, carried through, um, uh, through generations. And um, yeah. I was wondering if, if, because it's very important, I think, that your book ends with the birth, with with new with new life, um, um, the birth of Antara's daughter. And I was wondering how, um, you know, how that sort of signaled, or or not, um, you know, the continuation, or in some hopeful way. The, the 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 putting to a stop of that kind of um, you know carrying on of um, of of psychological trauma. I don't know if if again because it's and I, I return to our favorite word of the day ambivalence. It ends on a note of of ambivalence as well. Of course, we don't quite know. But I was wondering if if the birth of Antara's daughter held some signals for us to to sort of hold on to hmm. um i think symbolically there is this kind of light right where there's this new child and it signals the that perhaps there is if there are these two kind of opposing forces this is now a third 
uh, and, and the third is now the opportunity for something new. Uh, I think that is def there's a sense of that for sure. The only thing that kind of, um, that's a bit complicated for me in thinking about that in a very straightforward fashion is that I find um, I find that redemption and chronological time are tied in this particular way. And I think it's sometimes useful, yeah. but also easy to bury trauma under this kind of wall of chronological time. And I wonder if that's, I just wonder if that um, way of looking at life, if that way of kind of, that sort of narrative of time yeah. might be a little too easy and that might not actually be human time. You know, I think we have, we experience this kind of, and again, it, there's something deeply masculine and I, you know, it's like connected to the way we think about patriarchy at large, to be quite honest, but I, in general, our institutions and our history and our canons are all kind of built on these ideas of time. Um, but what about the other ideas of time? What about these bodily um, ideas of time? What about the time? What about the moments of time that are exploded and that kind of leak into others because of mm -hmm. um, the pain attached to them? You know, and this again ties into the idea of memory in the novel where, um, you, you know, memory is not this kind of objective linear, clean, um, I don't know, sometimes I think we think of lib like memory can al almost be scientific in our minds, especially when we use it in a in a court case, for example, you know, people are asked to come on the stand and, and discuss what happened and what they saw. And we take that as though, you know, it's so um, objective. And of course, it's not. And, and so I'm interested, I guess, um, even though the baby kind of comes at the end of the book and there's a sense that, of course, in terms of chronological time, this is now the heir of mm -hmm. the trauma, but also a chance for some kind of new movement forward. I'm not entirely convinced that that is how human time really works. Mm. Yeah. And that's how our... Um, I don't think that that's how our psyches operate. Yeah. You know, I think that sometimes what happened to our grandmothers, even though it happened before we were born, can be so alive in us and in every experience we've had. Um, and the way we go forward with our lives that it, it's not, it's not so easy to find that kind of redemptive moment. Yeah. <laughs> right, that was a very complicated answer. No, not at all. I mean, I think that this 
um, you know, also gestures to how, um, you know, deeply psychologically complicated your book is that it's not, you know, this is precisely why it's not, it's not easy. It's not, um, you know, sort of sunshine and rainbows and, oh, I'm just going to breeze through this in an afternoon. It's not, it, it is as complicated as you just sort of put it for us um, just now. So no, thank you so much. And I, I, I feel like, you know, because you put so much thought into not just the, the writing of it, but also into the things around the writing of it. Um, I know we've had little chats over this briefly, but I was wondering how physically for you um, writing feels. I feel like it has a physicality, you know, an, an aspect of physicality to it that not many writers talk about too much. I think we talk about the cerebral, of course, process of writing, how we, you know, begin a book and end a book and structure and things like that. But how does writing physically make you feel, Daphne? <laughs> um, writing is enlivening. It's um, when I get something right, when I'm writing and it, it kind of turns out you know, I feel like, wow, I've actually done something that might be might be good. Um, I think I feel probably more alive than with anything else. Um, and then at the same time, there's this, you know, because for me, the feeling of writing is also connected to a, a, a sort of rhythm of writing. And so there are these rhythms um, in terms of you know, like my daily schedule. I, although now it's a little up and down with the two children, but I, I try to sit down and write, and I try, try for it. I try to follow a kind of routine where it's, you know, I start pretty early in the morning, and then I know by about noon, by about lunchtime, I'm hungry and cranky, and <laughs> my brain isn't working anymore. Um, and I know basically after noon, whatever I write going to be rubbish mm. but sometimes I still have more that I just need to get out yeah um and then I would also say that there's like this aspect of physical pain as well yeah um the sitting yeah. uh the, there's there's something strangely there's something almost compulsive that happens. Like I pace a lot when I'm writing. Sometimes when I'm working out a sentence in my head, I have to kind of pace up and down. Um, and I don't know if maybe the steps help me hear a kind of music. Maybe there is some element of dance included in that, I don't know. Uh, but there are all these strange physical things I engage in. And also there are these, there are these dips, you know, in energy. And I think, I think you can sometimes reach a peak and then it ebbs. And uh, yeah, I don't know. There's something strange about that, but you can almost count on, although sometimes it feels really elusive, you can almost count on a kind of rhythm that, um, 
that you'll reach a peak and then you kind of lose it. Yeah. I don't know. I guess in my mind, there's something sort of watery um, with regard to writing something that's constantly moving. There's something that doesn't ever feel completely grounded. Um, I guess if I had to kind of think of it a little more in terms of like in terms of an element or something, I would think like a little more watery. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I, I don't know if that was your question. I just answered my own kind of question. You know, we we always do that. We always answer the questions we want to answer, and that we always want to write the books we want to write. It's fine, Avni. Um, I feel like we had lots of questions. Um, in the chat box and I have been terrible and not gotten to any of them because um, I mismanaged um, time. I'm so sorry, this is terrible. And I thought that we had another 10 minutes to go, which is when- um, One question or we really don't have time? Yeah, let me, can we, can we take one question? Um, I feel like there are so many and I don't want to disappoint everybody. Um, yes, please. Good. Akanksha asks, Miss Avni, to what extent do you think the toxic relationship between Antara and her mother affects the reliability of Antara's character? Do you feel that Antara is able to reveal everything about herself to the fullest of authenticity given her trauma? Uh, I do think Anthra is authentic to herself. I think we all probably have some kind of trauma that affects our subjective view. Um, I, I think all narrators are unreliable. I, I think there are some that are kind of glaringly so, but I think the minute you're, you're in the realm of that first person narrator, um, it's kind of good to quest, it's useful to keep questioning that narrator's perspective, um, where they're coming from, what their motivations and goals are. Do I think she's particularly unreliable because of her relationship with her mother? I don't think any, I think, I think trauma does a lot of things to us, but I think we're all deeply unreliable people. Yeah, I, I think we operate according to um, what we would like to gain and what our internal and psychological needs are. So. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, someone also asked, were you ever tempted to give Tara a redemption arc? Give her a what, sorry? A redemption arc. Um, I think in the previous drafts, she did have one. And then as I told you, I was kind of visited by this voice yeah. Um, of Antara and then she really decided I think to some degree what the story would be and there was not there was not that much room for it I again I think when I kept going back to this idea of redemption um, there was a way in which I think there were attempts at it but it felt somewhat untrue um, I, and I think at some point I began to think about redemption as this kind of narrative device that didn't necessarily have a place in this story. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would have been such a different book, really. A different yeah. book, right? Yeah. <laughs> totally different. That was a question from Shrishti, actually. Good question. 
Um, my sweetie, we will have to end here, although I have pages and pages of more questions. And this just goes to show that we have to meet, um, we have to talk, um, we have to continue this conversation. Um, and really just so much sort of, you know, love and thanks to everyone who joined us, um, everyone who is here. Thank you, um, JLF, for bringing us together. Um, Avneet, lots of love to you. <laughs> so much for doing this. I know you're in the middle of your manuscript as well. So yeah, thank you. Not at all. So happy to. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please subscribe or follow to this show wherever you're listening to this.